This episode of the Brewers Perspective podcast is presented by HPA. HPA's team of experts in breeding, growing, harvesting, and processing hops is dedicated to delivering impact in your beer year after year. In this episode of Brewers Perspective, Marcus and Anthony speak with Bent's Boat co-founder and head brewer Richard Watkins about recipe development and how to create a beer that fits the purpose you have for it. If you have a hop that is critical to one of your recipes, you might want to listen to Owen Johnston explain why forward contracts are a critical part of securing your future long-term hop supply and protecting your brewery from market volatility. This conversation was part of HPA's 2021 Virtual Harvest and is a valuable insight into how HPA ensures that only the highest quality hops reach the hands of brewers. There's a link in the show notes, and now over to your brewers, Marcus and Anthony, for their perspective. Hello and welcome to Brewers Perspective, presented by HPA. I am Anthony Clem, and as always, I am joined by my esteemed colleague, Marcus Cox. Uh, This week, we are looking at recipe development and specifically recipe development taking into account the purpose of the beer you are making. Uh, This episode was motivated by something that we're increasingly seeing on consumer-focused social media posts involving some unsightly chunks from coagulated proteins that have formed in the beer. Experimentation and boundary pushing have been hallmarks of craft beer, but at the same time, consumer trust and confidence are critical to the growth of the industry. When beer leaves the brewery, brewers lose control over it and its handling, and so should be considering its life in market from the very first stages of conception and planning. In this episode, we're joined by Richard Watkins from Benspoke Brewing to talk about recipe development and how to plan for the beer's ultimate purpose. Uh, Richard, welcome. G'day, guys. Thanks for having me on. No problem at all. Uh, so you've heard the intro. Should every beer that a brewer makes go into package? Yes, I think every beer a brewer makes can go into package, but um, there needs to be some tweaks to that recipe to allow it to go into package. But the the basis of the beer can be can be a beer that can go into package. So you mentioned the tweaks. What can you elaborate a little bit on on what you might uh, tweak if you were to consider a beer to go in can versus just strictly across the bar? Yeah, well, I guess probably need to start at the start, and that is um, when you're making a new beer. I mean, at the end of the day, for me, um, we come up with a recipe, but we want to get consumer feedback first before. We go down the trouble of doing sort of trials or testing or or then um, more depth development of that recipe. So generally what we'll do at Ben Spoke is we'll brew a beer in our brew pub. We'll get the recipe potentially 90% right um, and we'll give the consumers a chance to come in and taste the beer and provide us feedback. And we might even then develop that beer um, by... You know, changing just the normal things like maybe looking at the water or the malt bill or the hops um, or the temperature it's been fermented at or the type of yeast we used. Um, We might do a a little bit of that in the brew pub. And then if we decide, yeah, this is going to be one of these beers that we want to take into one of our um, beer series outside of our core range, then we'll have a look at the base recipe and go, all right, is is this suitable to go into package? Are we going to have... Um, you know, is it going to have long, the longevity that it needs? Um, and I guess, um, you know, stability and 
certainly length of time in packaging is obviously something that we, we look at. So you're looking at a, obviously going out to the Nationals, you're looking at at least a, a nine-month shelf life uh, if you're going through a DC. That, that's, that's an incredibly long amount of time. When do you stop taking a punt that it's going to be okay and when do you know it's okay? I've always, from my point of view, tried to create the definition of the beer even before the recipe and part of that is the expectation that it's, it's going to be three months on a shelf in, a, in an independent store as opposed to nine months on the shelf in a big box. What's the this kind of process and the, and the analytical stuff you'd be looking at to, to substantiate that that recipe is probably coming together for you? Yeah, um, I guess you can do, we can do, you can still do four staging um, tests, um, even using brewpub beer. You can, um, you know, we've got a couple of ways that we can package the beer um, using a little canner we've got um, to try and test that beer and see how it looks um, um, in, the, um, in the package for a bit of time. Um, you can obviously do a heat test as well. Certainly putting the beer through its um, up and downs in temperature is obviously one of the big ones. Um, for me, the other thing is making sure that, because um, we're generally doing a lot of hop-focused beers, um, that we've got our hop creep under control. And we're very, um, we, we brew a lot of our beers using the same yeast because we know how the hop creep works with that yeast. And we end up getting our um, final gravities um, right where we want them, um, generally below two Play-Doh, so that, we don't have any issues when we go into package. Yeah, that makes sense for me. I mean, the two the two threats that we're looking at are definitely residual sugar and yeast. Uh, so less than two Play-Doh is going to be a happy place for most things. Does that mean that you're reluctant to go to market with hazy type things or things that have, you know, one of those two things, yeast plus the residual fermentable? It's, it's a category that's in demand and it's obviously... From the step-off point for what we're talking about today, it's, you know, it's one of the main problems, um, over-carbonation as well as the protein precipitation. Um, is, is that why you kind of steer clear of those styles? Um, I've, we've spent a lot of money on putting a centrifuge in, so um, for me to, to, to not use the centrifuge... And, um, <laughs> you've, you've, you've preempted my next question about, about stabilisation, yeah. Um, and sort of to create... Um, yeah, so all our beers go through a centrifuge... Um, Look, there's a lot of brewers out there making really good hazy beers and they obviously have their ways of doing it. Um, but I still think, um, for me, hazy beers are a thing I haven't really... They haven't really got me over the line. Um, I think if you do blind blind tastings on hazy beers and really good IPAs, people who, people who like hoppy beers will pick the you know, the clearer IPAs over the hazy ones. Nice phrasing how you mentioned the, um, the really good IPAs and it was just implied that they were the clear ones, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you, you know, you do, you, you, well, for me, you find you get a lot of yeast bite. Yeast bite isn't a flavour that I really like um, in beer. Um, so, I mean, I guess when you're designing those hazy beers, you've got to take into account that you're going to get some yeast bite. Um, and that's a really big variable, yeast bite. It can... From the same amount of hops and the same yeast, it can be exceptionally variable. I don't think there's a lot of known science behind yeast bite, unless um, you guys know a bit more than me on that. But I haven't, I haven't seen a lot of science on yeast bite and how to control it. That'd be one of the big things that I, I'd like to see a bit more control over to be able to design recipes on. Yeah, yeast bite is certainly certainly challenging for everyone, and I. I I think I like what you're what you're doing at at uh, Ben Spoke because you know you 
the majority of the beers you, you've got going into can are very consistent, and that you've shown that through you know, years and years of, of doing what you're doing. One of the things I think about when uh, putting recipes together is just you know what's available from a hop perspective as well, and this is where hazies start to get pretty challenging as well. If you're trying to do consistent hazies, uh, you know, you've got to have almost the same hops day in day out, you know, stored very well and looked after. Do you have a philosophy around around hopping and you know, how many different types of hops you would use to, to make sure that you know, you've got good availability or you're just working with your suppliers better? Yeah, hops have been a really big journey for me, I think, um, in that when I started brewing in 1995, um, there weren't very many hop varieties around. There were really some Australian ones and occasionally you get some in from the US and the UK. And the quality was terrible. In fact, at one point, we received a box, 20 kilo box of UK Fuggles because that's all that we could get it in then. And it was touted as being the latest hop crop, but diving into it a little bit later, um, it was found that it was well over five years old, even though it had <laughs> just come out on a plane. So um, I sort of luckily enough found a, somebody who could start bringing in hops into Australia. Obviously, that was Peter Meddings through Yakima Chief and and from there, we started to get some really fresh hops and we could actually start to really see what hops did in beer. Um, and I think then that opened up to Australian brewers at least getting a lot more um, credible and fresh hops coming in. So we, now Ben spoke, we're sort of getting, um, we're doing hop harvest every year. We're selecting our hops from the US. We generally got about seven or eight different varieties that we select. And then on top of that, we, we sort of spot a number of other varieties and all our beers are based around using a hop blend we haven't got a single hop beer um, i don't even think we've got a beer with only two hops in it i think all our beers is that something that revolves around that availability and that you know reluctance to overcommit with one particular variety having the blend gives you some more latitude to, to change up and change down yeah i just also think with the changes because because obviously we're talking about an annual crop um the changes in that hop you know, let's pick a hop, for instance, called Citra. When it first came out, it was a lot different to what it is this year. And when I'm selecting hops and we can actually get the data from the different farms over in the US, I've got a particular type of Citra that I like, and that is I want that orange character in it, where somebody else might want bubblegum character in their Citra. And so the brewer who wants the bubblegum can select the Citra from a different farm. And for me, I select a Citra that gives me that orange character that I want. Um, and I think the best way then is to, to have consistent hop character is to work out what, what are the hops that are going to give you the characters you want and try and use two or three of them so that if they do change each year that you can still create that consistent character you want. So Crankshaft's got four hops, Sprocket's got four, Rednut four, Easy and Bailey have got three. I like this idea as well. This is what this is something similar to I do as well, Richard. Like I... I put together a bit of an aroma profile of what I would like the beer to look like all the time. And you can, you know, so when you do get changes in hop quality, then, you know, you can get away with not seeing t- a massive significant aroma profile difference uh, when, you, when you're using a variety of hops rather than, mm. you know, if you're throwing just one hop in, you know, it's a mixed bag from year, 
that is year a mixed bag. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And well, the other thing we're seeing is that even the hops grown at the same farm in the US change. Yeah, so you, you really believe it's important to go and select, obviously. Absolutely, yeah. I think um, the selection, not everyone, I guess, can get to do it. I mean, I don't think they can have every brewer in the world going and selecting, but no. um, certainly I think it's a really valuable experience once you get to that stage where you're using a fair few hops in, you know, in, in your production. Um, and, and I think just going back to what I just mentioned was selecting, um, seeing the, the changes at the farm, even though the farmer's doing everything the same that they would normally do because they know how to work their farm to get the best quality hops as well as crop numbers. But seeing the flavour change at different farms is, is just shows what we're, we're dealing with in terms of the variable of hops. Yeah, so regardless of whether you're, you're buying citra uh, season... Well, some people can't get Citra at all. So they <laughs> That's <can>. true. <laughs> Regardless of buying... Richard's very much on one end of the spectrum with, you know, the, the magical hand-picking out in the forest type scenario and everybody else just gets still the box of crap that turns up. So it's, it's a varied mix of clients out there. Absolutely. But I, I think what we're getting at is that you're, gonna, you're going to need to tweak your recipes uh, based on what you're seeing from hop uh, quality each, each year. And I... That's right. That's exactly right. So if you're getting your, you know, obviously, yeah, you're right. I mean, not everyone gets to go and select hops, but I mean, and I, I was one of those people um, not that long ago that wasn't selecting hops. Um, but when I was getting my hops from my supplier in my little five kilo bags, I was, um, I was always blending hops. I think I've been blending hops now for well over 17 years. And I, it's for that reason that you, you're just dealing with, if you want to be consistent, you get this, you make this great beer. And the beautiful thing about making a great beer is you want to make it again and you want to make it again so, and it's, have it taste exactly the same. And the only way you're going to do that is to use a blender hops, I, I believe, I believe. Yeah. I remember when I'd been brewing for about five years, which happened to match up with about the fifth anniversary of uh, Three Ravens, the 55 was born off the idea of one of the fires was five hops because we couldn't get what we wanted and we'd try and feature one or two and just shuffle them around on the cycle so that... That's something I'm yeah. pretty familiar with. Yeah. Are you doing those tweaks based on, you know, sort of sensory analyses? So, or are you, you know, can you get a feel for what the hops are going to perform like, uh, you know, when they're straight well, out of the Before they go bag? in the beer? No, more like, you know, when you've brewed the beer with new seasons hops, for example, and it, pop, it comes out the other end and you're, you know, you're tasting it. Are you then saying, all right, let's let's evaluate what we're seeing versus what we, you know, what happened last year in a previous batch? Uh, how do you how do you go about the tweaks? One thing that I've learned to do, and it's only recently I've been doing this, is is making sure that you compare um, the different hot batches that you get. So making sure you do sensory from, you know, if you're using Citra from 2019, compare it to Citra 2020 and do a side by side. Um, and make sure you get those hops, rub those really hard between your hands. If, even if it's just pellets, either grind it up into a flat, into a powder and rub it really hard between your hands to really get that heat going and get those, those aroma oils working. And that's one way where you can really compare, okay, I've got these characters in 2019, I've got these characters in 2020, I haven't got this character I want, maybe I need to bring in this hop to give this character. Anthony's obviously talked about the idea of the flavour profile of the beer or the hop flavour profile specifically. People think about a recipe often as a lock document. 
how do you capture that variability? How do you how do you remind yourself of how those changes were made and what the basis was when you look back at them in from two or three years ago? The evolution of a recipe. Well, the evolution of yes. a recipe is basically ongoing because um, you know we look at our silo fields, for instance, when we get a, a silo field or a different batch of um, malt in, in our bags. Um, we're looking at the change, difference between those those malts because if you get one malt that's um, you know, say it doesn't attenuate as well as another one, then that's going to change your flavour balance at the end of the beer. So you need to adjust for that in your bitterness potentially. Um, uh, so I think um, our crankshaft is basically um, we're probably tweaking it, you know, a little bit each each fortnight potentially. Fortnightly is is a lot. That obviously means you're making a lot, a lot of it as well. Well, yeah, we get a silo fill roughly every fortnight, so we're testing that and we might drop some grain out or put some more in depending on what we're getting. So it's more looking at uh, you know, extract and attenuation in the grain um, for that, yeah, which is you know, when you're brewing a lot of beer, absolutely, to get it consistently, I, I could understand that. But but then I guess analogy then is um, like, and, and I'm happy to be honest about this, um, like we do use a little bit of sugar in all our beers, a really small amount, probably 5 to 10%. And the reason for doing that, and, and this isn't something new, this is what, you know, this is what um, bigger brewers have done forever, but it's probably not as common in craft breweries, but it's really important. Re- I, I found it really important to use a little bit in every beer because it, it, it creates consistent finishes to the beer because you know sugar's going to ferment out the same way each time you use it. So does that imply that a lot of your beers are very dry or? Yeah, they are. A lot of them are. I mean, like when I'm only, we're only talking small amounts. We're not losing, um, you know, mouthfeel or we're not losing, um, you know, because I like my malt profile for all our IPAs. I think that's the secret to a good IPA is having malt profile. You can still get malt profile using a little bit of sugar, but it does firm up that, that consistent attenuation. Yeah. And that probably ties back to your two Plato target for terminal gravity. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Yep. I think this is, yeah, I know the big breweries have been using it for, for many years uh, and that's... Slightly different purposes. and then Slightly you... different purpose in that they're trying to use it to reduce the malt character so that you're getting a sort of yeah. a cleaner flavour beer. But Richard's right in the, the importance of just having consistent attenuations when you combine a small amount of sugar with maltose. The yeast does perform very well and attenuate very well, especially if you're using a yeast that you're really comfortable with that is a reasonable attenuator anyway, uh, and it's I think not, it's you'll not get great of results. The, not scared of the single-chain sugars as well because that can be a problem. And when you're throwing lots of hops in, you want it to go dry and make sure that there is no residual sugar there so that you can can it and be comfortable that you are seeing no more fermentation in can. What about the idea that people feel like they're ripped off because the beer's not malty enough? that comes down to the style of beer you're trying to make um yep um i don't think anyone would think crankshaft's not malty enough um if i was thinking about it's probably on the on the high side of maltiness for for that sort of style if anything um but i mean i think what, what you're getting at is if somebody's making like an english you know an english style bitter or a stout or something like that and because you use a little bit of sugar you're not getting quite getting the malt character you want um i think that's just all in the development of getting that percentage of sugar right to allow the malt to shine but get the attenuation you want. Yep. And that's using some other specialty malts, I imagine, to get those real malty characters that you're trying to achieve in your Higher proportion of specialty malts, yeah. Yeah, rather than using all base. That's right, yeah. The the malt complex, I mean, malts, 
I don't think there's there's a beer we only use one malt in either. So I mean, mm. yeah, having a blend of malts is same is sort of similar to having a blend of hops, really. Yeah. Um, obviously, it's a little bit outside of your wheelhouse, but um, have you got any advice for the, the people out there that might be experiencing chungus? The, uh, the, the particles floating around in beer? You other couldn't, than, couldn't help yourself. Other than not to make them or make them very carefully? Or? Well, I think um, you've got to decide what sort of haze you want in your beer. Do you want a really chunky yeast haze or do you want a, um, you know, a, uh, a, like a hop haze? And I think that come, that's the secret, the secret of the really good beers. And there are some really good beers out there that are hazy that I really enjoy to drink. I think come down to making sure you've got the hop haze created from all those polyphenols in the hops as opposed to the yeast haze. I think it's in some ways you'd nearly, you know, um, remove most of that yeast haze and, 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 um, dry hop it potentially after removing a lot of the yeast so that you do get that really finer haze that is more stable, less flavour contribution. It's got to be one way of making sure that when you get to the end of a can, you're not getting you're not getting uh, large chunks pouring into the glass. I've, I've joked with you before, often when you finish one of these beers, the, you think the can weighs too much, but it's actually the crap that's stuck to the bottom, so... Yeah, that's that's not good. It isn't, is it? I mean, you know, the consumer is getting that, and and I think it's not good for our our in, our industry um, that consumers do get that, and when they pour that last bit in, it's um, you know, you got to stir the stir the beer before you can drink it. I don't, I don't know. If, yeah, I don't like that. I don't think that's a good thing. I think um, high stability created from hops is the way to go for sure. For me, it leads to inconsistency. Yeah, you'll have one that's might be pretty chunky. The next one might be fine. Uh, There's acceptable variation, but that's really pushing the pushing. Well, the you get you get inconsistency in the glass then as well. Like, so when you you it's you're getting inconsistency by the way you're pouring it. So uh, I I don't like it either. But coming back to experimental beers, and I know there's oh, I know there's probably a lot of guys out there that are quite experienced putting recipes together and. Um, doing new recipes and it seems to be a bit of a trend uh, that every little new recipe that comes out they throw in a can so you know we've talked about experiment experimentation and experimental beers like what sort of what sort of things can guys do to ensure that you know they can can the first round recipe or the first round beer that they've done on a on a new recipe that, that, yeah, that's a good point. I think uh, one thing that I learned over the years is to build up your own wheelhouse. So understand when you start using different ingredients, understand what they're going to do to the beer. And then you can assume that when you do use that ingredient next time, whether it's a fruit or whatever it is you're using, you'll understand what flavour contribution it makes. And, you know, you'll need less development on that recipe. So I think understand... Understand your equipment, understand what it's capable of, but then also understand what different um, different ingredients do. And if you're using them, then you've already had that, you've been potentially already had that development with that ingredient in previous beers. Uh, it's a bit like using a blender hops. Um, if you use a blender hops, you always know how that's going to perform. But if you've used a blend and then you've subbed in one for another, then at least you have that up your sleeve at some point to, to bring out again. Um, that's the way I'd look at it. I, I think the there's, there's the people that are doing it well, putting out new beers all the time, 
I think of um, generally the new beers they put out are very similar or a lot similar to other beers that they do. They're not necessarily jumping over massive cha- massive style changes. You know, I think you guys have got a brewery up there range. They do different beers all the time, and they're all reasonably they're all great beers, and they're they're all reasonably there's certainly similar. A, there's certainly a similarity, yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, I think. Um, and then yeah, there's you know obviously Mountain Culture, another one. There's pro- there's heaps of other breweries doing it. I know there's breweries in the West doing it. Um, they're all they're putting out great beers, but they're all they've all got a similarity about them. And I think that's that, that's why they can do it. So it's standing good beers apart from you know, the average ones. The guys are, are spending more time working on similar things and then feel a bit more confident about going to the market with some you know, with something a little bit different but not too dissimilar to what they've done in the past. I guess I guess the other side of the coin is inadvertently I found myself um being more forgiving with experimental beer and it, it wasn't something that I, I meant to do. It just, you know, you spend 15 bucks on a can and it's crap and you go, well, that's kind of the first time they've made it. it, it do you guys have any thoughts on how that kind of transference of, of, you know, making your own little apology for somebody else's mistakes kind of works in the market? So what you're saying is you're, you're take, you're, you take that into account when you drink a bad beer that, oh, have they brewed it before or is this the first oh, time they brewed it? As I said, it's kind of inadvertent and it, it just kind of, it's just one, you, just, you know, or it's the same kind of thing you have with a new brewery where you say, you know, give, give them a break. So many things seem like they shouldn't work and when they do, it's a bonus. Um, but for the other nine that are, you know, before it or after it, you kind of just, as I said, I'm still flexible and still indulge for some reason. Everyone likes a new thing. Everyone likes to try something new. Uh, I, I do like what you do, Richard. I think the approach you take where you can trial your consumers across the bar first and you can do some batch, small batch trialling in-house, in-can, on a small machine. I, I think that's a really good thing. Uh, with these experimental beers, not, not, I guess not everyone has that approach. They're, they're tending to get things out there as quick as possible. Uh, is that a downside? Instead of, yeah, you because know, you're doing this broad release to a really wide audience on something you really haven't done a lot of testing, you know, what's the downside? Well, it's a big risk, isn't it? I mean, I think um, if you're really small brewery and you're looking at just, and you just started out wholesaling and you want to, you know, every time you make a new beer, you want to get it out to your local bottle shops and, um, and and get them to sell it. I don't think there's too much of a problem with that because the quantity of stock that you're probably selling um, and the reach that your little brewery's got is probably going to keep the beer pretty, like it's going to turn over pretty quickly. It's probably not going to sit around very long on the shelves. It's not going to, the beer's not going to travel to, if you're a little brewery, say in, in Brisbane, you're not probably going to be selling beer in South Australia, you know, or or um, WA or something like that. So your beer's not really going to travel that far. I don't think, uh, the interesting, an interesting question back to you guys is, what is the biggest brewery at the moment that wholesales their beer on with some sort of distribution that puts out, Lots of new beers, whether it's weekly, fortnightly, or even monthly. Is there a brewery that even puts out a new beer every month in can um, with some sort of distribution? I don't, I don't know if there is one. I'm just trying I to. I don't think. know. Down in Victoria, Dayton's is probably doing a pretty good job of popping one up every week or so. Um, yeah, okay. Do you reckon most of that beer, though, would be sold in Victoria? Probably. I do, I do see it up here. It has got a fairly yeah. wide distribution. Okay. okay. Uh, Dayton's beer. Uh, so, 
So what I was trying have... to get at there, localised distribution is certainly yeah. being helpful to people putting new beers in cans. And, and you know, if you're doing a whatever number cart and run, you, 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 you're probably pretty sure that it's going to sell out, A, pretty quickly and, and B, not go that far. And I think there's advantages, obviously, in that um, in terms of trying to put out new beers all the time. Um, Dayton's have been around for a while. And the other thing I was going to mention yeah. a bit earlier is I think as you, as you, um, I think mature as a brewer, you end up getting a big repertoire of recipes that you've collected from brewing for you know over a number of years. And bringing out a new new beer may well be from a base recipe of you know years gone by that you've already brewed and you've got some data on and you know how these malts are going to work together and you know um, what bitterness levels you're trying to get and you know the attenuation that the of the yeast that you're going to use. So you've got a bit of data from the from from you know previous years, and I think that's one thing a lot of brewers maybe don't realise at the start is recording of data, even if it's a not a good beer. Recording of data is really important so that you can rely on that and you can go back and go, hey, when I want to create a new beer, oh that's right, two years ago I used that saison yeast and it fermented down to one play-doh and I didn't have to put any bitterness hops in or whatever it is, having all that information, I think, um, is exceptionally important. And that's one way to get around not doing multiple trial batches of a, of a, um, of a product. So just extending the process to something else that's 20% different, 80% the same, sounds like a pretty good plan. And moving back through the archives and just having a look at what you did in the past to, to make it work, I, I agree. I think it's a... Fantastic Everybody's had the moment it. where it's the perfect beer and it's because you ran out of something or somebody didn't fill something out and you can't work out what actually happened. So yeah, that, that, that sounds pretty good. Coming back to recipe development, I, I know we've talked in previous episodes about oxidation being probably one of the biggest issues that we see in the market where you get a, a, a wide variation of oxidation occurring in the beers off the shelf uh, with because we just don't have control of the supply chain most of the time, especially if you're distributing interstate, etc. I've I've in the past modified a beer so to take out a bit of bit more, you know, take out a bit more crystal malt, so that I know in three to four months when it ends up on a shelf that it's not got that real serious sweetness and oxid, you know, that oxidation can bring over time. Is that something you consider as well, Richard? Like, do you take into account what the beer might look like from, you know, three to, in three to four months, what the hops might look like, what the malts might do under oxidation characteristics? That's something we very much touched on with um, Simon from Four Pines. And one thing that he mentioned was that their beers are mainly seeing the market at week whatever, and they're back building the beer to be optimised for the time that people are actually drinking it based on market feedback. Yeah, that's that's a good question. I think that all comes down to that designing that the malt bill in your beers to um, yeah, as you say, not have that toffee caramel oxidation character that uh, happens to malt. Um, I guess that then, what do you do with say beers that are um, you know like what do you do with say red coloured beers or darker beers or um, that you know that at the end of the day those beers are just they're going to oxidise at some point. And I but I think um, oxidation's down to it's not just down to um, 
worrying about once the beer actually leaves the brewery. It's it's being able to do everything in your control and power in the brewery to get the oxygen levels as low as you possibly can in that beer to start with, um, so that it does handle a bit of oxidation. And I sort of understand what you were just saying about um, four pines and and how they allow for that we don't do that I, I still believe the beer tastes best when it's fresh and i want other people to um experience that so um we'll package beer one day and release it the next day potentially most of the time yep. so there's a bit of i guess there's two ways to look at it i think one of the biggest things about oxidation in, in breweries is is being able to measure oxidation and being able to measure dissolved oxygen in beer right from the start through to the the package. I think that's something that a lot of breweries probably don't invest enough um, money in. And having a really good oxygen meter and being able to measure your oxygen levels in your in your package cans, um, I think is critical to canning or bottling. And you should really invest in that over other automated equipment, in my opinion. And yeah. I think. Um, I think the main thing is obviously you know you're going to pick up some oxygen in packaging beer. It's impossible to package bottles and, and cans without picking up some residual oxygen. Obviously different different levels um, depending on equipment. But I think it's getting beer um, in the bright beer tank in the best shape is something yeah. that I've noticed over the years that a lot of breweries need to work on um, and probably don't have the best processes in place to get the beer in the bright tank in the best possible state. So one thing we do is we clean our bright tanks under pressure. So we minimize the amount of um, oxygen pickup we do in that cleaning process. Um, and we also then minimize the amount of purging that we need to do on our bright tanks before we start looking at putting beer in it. And that's, yep. that, that's a reasonably simple little thing to do. Everyone has to clean a, uh, a bright tank with a pump and that pump will handle um, pressure and cleaning um, your bright tank under pressure will certainly help not have as much oxygen in the tank when you go to put your beer in it. So it's less about the recipe in some cases well, this is, of the process. This is right? exactly, I, I've got this kind of soapbox moment I planned on having and, and Richard's kind of moved us there anyway and you've just you've flagged the same thing. It's, it's the, the classic moment when like a, a younger brewer or somebody that's new to brewing comes to you with this, uh, you know, two, two different beers and they tell you that they changed one of the ingredients and they've got no control of their process and they think that that ingredient is, is what the difference is and you try and explain to them politely that it's in fact, you know, this one's oxidised to hell and this one's only moderately oxidised um, and they look at you like you're stupid um, and go back to the malt. Um, you know, having, having a repeatable process and having parameters for that and NDO being a huge one... Um, really sets you up for the best control of your recipe to know what your recipe actually manifests as in the finished product. If you ever want to look at, um, look at the, res the um, impact of spontaneous oxidation, when I first started brewing at the Wigan Pen, um, we started to look at doing our, um, making our own cider. Cider is very susceptible to oxidation. And we um, had this process where we, we were crushing all our own apples. We were... Um, creating our juice and then we thought about to get stability and get rid of the pectin um, that uh, the pectin content um, so we had nice um, consistent clarity we thought we'd filter the cider and 
the process we had for filtering the cider or filtering beer was that we would sterilize our filter and and then we'd run beer through and we'd then um you know once we once we were 100 percent sure we got rid of any sterilant we then run the beer into the tank but trying to do that with cider was uh brought a whole new level of fear and and great results because the first bit of cider that I I filtered half an hour later it was bright red it was <laughs> it came out of the filter looking clear and golden and, and absolutely super bright and it was great but then half an hour later it was absolutely bright red and I've sort of started to panic you know I wasn't very experienced back then and I then started after a few phone calls to a few people who knew a bit more than me i realized that what we'd done is we'd oxidize we'd oxidize the cider so i went and put a teaspoon when i got a teaspoon of um potassium metabisulfate and put it back into that cider in half an hour that cider would was back to being clear and golden in color so that that's a that shows you what oxidation can actually do and and the impact that it can actually have um on beer and on on well, on products, but on, on cider and beer, um, if you're not careful about it. And I think getting it right in the brewery is really important. I, I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, I would happily I would happily just hand out my recipes, and I have done in the past, for people yes. that are just mad mad brewers and love your beer. They go, oh, we need your recipe. I'm like, yeah, take it. Because I know it's, it's so difficult to replicate recipes without having the process behind them what what are your thoughts as well Richard because I mean some people guard them some people just oh yeah there you go yeah well it's interesting um I mean in the ACT Canberra Brewers the amateur brew club are a very passionate group of people but also a very skilled group of people and they all um most of them are all grain brewers with um full temperature control PIDs running all their 50 litre systems and it's all, um, you know, fully automated. So they're all, they're an amazing group of people. But we regularly each year we, we do a, a few challenges and that is giving out the same ingredients, not the, just the same recipe, actually weighing out all the same ingredients and having brewers go off and brew with exactly the same ingredients. Uh, sort of called, I think it's called System Wars or something like that. And it's amazing the difference in beer flavors that come back from using not only the same recipe but exactly the same ingredients. That's that's an incredible experiment. And, and what what's the feedback like uh, amongst the group when they can see? Wow, what? How did you do that versus versus what I've got? Go and check your process. <laughs> well, that's right. I mean, it's it's interesting when you talk about ingredients in beer, and you've obviously got your water, malt, hops, and yeast. But the fifth ingredient is your brewery. And it, it's um, it should it's it's fully under underestimated. I think when you when people are designing recipes, because you've got to take into account what your brewery can do. And I think learning about your brewery and learn and and recording, as I was saying earlier, like making sure you record data and and know what your limits are in your brewery and how much you're allowed, to, how many kilos of grain your ladder can hold, and do all those. You know, go through all that and, and have you have a recipe, have a have a template recipe that your brewery can can brew. Like not every brewery can brew every single type of beer, and 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 um, you know there's there's um, constraints. Every brewery's got constraints, so understand what they are because that 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 affects affects flavour considerably. I, I imagine it's not only just the brew house as well, Richard. There'd be that's right. We've we've all got constraints around tank, tank vessel, geometry, vessel sizes, yeah. and there's different height to width ratios now that you're seeing in 
in vessels and um, people put tanks in because that's how high their ceiling is. Everything else follows. Vis- visual effect mm. in brew pubs is is a factor as well. So there's lots of variables, isn't there? That's right. There's an incredible amount of, and 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 you're right. So that system wars I was talking about that went through, I guess, all fermentation. Um, you know, people having different fermentation setups. Um, everyone has temperature control fridges and stuff, so it's conditions recipe wise. Like if you if the if the recipe called for fermenting the yeast at twenty degrees, everybody would have fermented at twenty degrees. But how that beer then sort of gets processed through to the the little corny keg that that it got tested in or how it got bottled, I suppose. There's um, similarity of recipes there. But we've, going back to what you just said there, no tank geometry, that's, an, that's a big one. And, and I haven't, I haven't um, really had a lot of personal experience being able to brew a, a beer in the same, um, same brew house but then use different size fermenters. I mean, apart from when we started Ben Spoke. So we had, um, we had, uh, we've got 24 hectolitre tanks and 12 hectolitre tanks in our, in our brew pub and definitely you notice the difference um, um, when crankshafts brewed in those different, different vessels. So we brew it in the bigger ones. We think it tastes better out of the bigger ones than the smaller ones. Um, but even in our production brewery, we've made a conscious decision to stick with 100 hect fermenters because of potential flavour changes to the hop character in our beers, the, the bigger the fermenters get and that hydrostatic pressure playing a lot of a big role as well in, in flavour. So we've actually made a conscious decision to stick with 100 hectic fermenters and maybe look at bigger brights and racking multiple fermenters at once into a bright rather than go for, you know, bigger fermenters. That's an interesting approach as well because a lot of a lot of guys that, you know, they've done well with their, with their brewery, they've done well with their brand, are starting to expand and, and the best way to do that is just put bigger fermenters in. Uh, and so suddenly, instead of brewing one or two brews into a vessel, they're brewing six, four, six brews. And I had this really interesting chat with Scotty from Balta because I mean he's mm. he he's got very big fermenters uh, and he's putting a lot of brews in them. So he's done a lot of work to ensure that. You know the the amount of iterations of brews that are going into that fermenter are still producing the same flavour profile at the end of the at the end of the ferment. So, just understanding the constraints in your own brewery is is really important. And I, I guess that's that leads to a question: Are brewers, you know, focusing enough on what their constraints within their internal brewery is before they jump onto Brewed IPA or the the hazy or the sours or wh- whatever's popping up. I mean, what, one point of reference would be that if you've only worked in one brewery, you have no relative point. Once you've worked in two breweries, you can understand the constraints of the first one and the second one. Yeah, <laughs> good point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's just, right. I mean, just in a referential capacity. Yeah, good point. And a lot of people are on their first brewery, so that's just what it is. I guess though, even even being on your first brewery, just understanding what you can get away with and what you can't. Uh, have we have we got the? This might be something for our next podcast where we're talking a little bit about skills and uh, training within breweries. But have we got the experience and um, know how to to jump from one style to another? If you're brewing specific styles on your brewery. Uh, 
how you know it's not that easy sometimes if you've got a two vessel brew house that you know, can do a standard range of beers quite well. Um, you've got single infusion mash, and you want to try and do a Hefeweizen, for example. Well, it's all 50% oats. Yeah, or 50% oats. <laughs> I think that comes back to, you know, let's, let's go right back to the start now and, and go, well, what is your business plan? What is your goal in setting up your brewery and what, type, what are you actually trying to, to do? And I think that then links into the type of brewery you're gonna, you need to get and the type of equipment you need to get and the skills you have to actually then use that equipment. So I think that sort of comes back to sort of the start. And I think um, I've been a big campaigner over the years that there's only two brewing models at work. You're really, really small and you can sell your beer in a brew pub and you can make the retail dollar or you're really, really big and you can make beer at a, at a volume that you can actually make, you know, you can make a margin on. Um, and then once you have one of those models, then you can do do anything in between. But I think what we find a lot of the time is we've got a lot of small breweries trying to be national, you know, have national distribution, or we've got really big breweries trying to have a, a you know, have a have a, a brew pub. And both of those ones don't don't really work for for a whole raft of reasons. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. I think uh, I think we've had a pretty good run. Uh, we got back to the start at the end. We have so. got back to the start. We've <laughs> gone full full circle. Was there anything else you had to add, Marcus? That was sufficient, I think, for me. A- any any more uh, words of wisdom, Richard, from you? Oh, look, just keep things simple and just brew beers. You know how to brew. Use ingredients. You know. Use methods. You know. And if you if you do that, you'll make really good beer. So you waited right to the end to put the boot in, mate. <laughs> so. oh, I like it. Keep it simple. Exactly. <laughs> no, it's been a pleasure to catch up with you, Richard. It's been an, uh, an interesting topic to talk about. Thanks for joining us at Brewers Perspective. Thanks very much for having me. Good luck to all the brewers out there. They're going to need it. Thanks, Richard. You can download a full transcript of this conversation with links to other information in the show notes to this episode. Brewery Pro content is presented by Brews News and is designed for the brewing industry professional. If you have any suggestions for topics that we can cover, email us at cheers at brewsnews.com.au. Thank you for listening.